The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, if you think my hair is messed up today, it's not because I just jumped out of an airplane. It's because I need a haircut. But today we're actually joined by a former paratrooper, Daryl Adams, who is now the co-founder and president of Rough Diamond Limited and used to be a paratrooper in the Canadian Armed Forces. I think it was a great chat and it was a really fun look at his transition from the military to the business and equipment world. Yeah, you could definitely see how I think he's been able to use his his skills and his training that he developed, uh, not only in the armed forces, but in the police service, uh, to the way he orients his business and how detailed oriented he is. But also, I think even the way that he approaches, you know, managing and caring for his people, I think that really came through as well. Um, I think you and I needed to budget a lot longer to talk to Daryl because we probably could have spent an entire episode just talking about uh you know, Band of Brothers, uh, his oh, time yeah. in the armed forces. Uh, I mean, I didn't even get, I was going to go on a tangent about Curahy in Band of Brothers <laughs> and running up the three miles up, three miles down. But I, I resisted that urge because we were already over time anyway, and he's got, he's got stuff to do, but uh, no, maybe, was, maybe a good chance for a beer sometime. Yeah. Yeah. So, but no, it was a great chat with Daryl today. I mean, I think but rather than you and I talking about our great chat with Daryl, why don't we just let the listeners and the viewers go right to our conversation with Daryl Adams. For sure. So Daryl Adams, co-founder and president of Rough Diamond Limited, a Sudbury-based company that focuses on mobile solutions for remote locations. Daryl constantly seeks out new and innovative ways for clients to move people and equipment safe and effectively. He draws on, as we mentioned, his 12 years of experience in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he develops skills that focus on mission analysis, detail, operational planning, peacekeeping, leadership and crisis management, and where he deployed several amphibious vehicles in various settings in a number of different countries. We now give you Daryl Adams. All right, we're back and we're joined uh, by Daryl Adams, who is the founder, president and CEO of Rough Diamond Limited. Um, Daryl, you know, we always have really interesting folks on the on the show and the name of the show is Unlikely Innovators. And um, I just think it's such an interesting story you have, you know, starting with armed forces and now where you are now. So we kind of like to ask the question, like in the in the in the uh, format of what did you want to be when you grew up? But I just would love to understand, obviously, pre armed forces, but from armed forces to rough diamond seems like such an interesting uh, uh, tale also. So take that and do with it what you will. Sure. Um, so. Like a lot of people know both militaries, but a lot of people don't know in the military, there's upwards of 70, 80 plus trades uh, in the military. And uh, certain trades, uh, your part of your training schema is to be a problem solver, think tank, work your way out of problems, whether it's, you know, solving how to get into a structure, how to get out of a place, uh, undetected. You just have to think your way through and, um, some of the, the things they teach you in the military are to get away from if then into a when then. So you run contingencies and when this happens, then we're doing that. So in the military, uh, I served uh, just in around 12 years in the Canadian forces. Uh, and uh, during that time, I com completed three six month tours in the Balkans, the former Republic of Yugoslavia. First tour was with the UN. Uh, six months and the other two were NATO tours. Um, but the entire time was always trying to do more with less, um, learning skills and abilities and honing the abilities 
um, on how to motivate people when there's no such thing as overtime. Um, how, how do you how do you get people to do what you need done uh, given we're sometimes 183 days away from home uh, hot meals are rare um, mail sometimes gets delivered so you, you try and focus on the on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and take care of people's safety you know you, you know you always you want to be a competent leader so the military really I feel uh, took Daryl Adams um, and uh, was a little rough around the edges uh, growing up and uh, uh, the military brought me in, filtered me, polished me up and uh, sent me on my way and uh, loved the military. I would have stayed in. Uh, I loved every second of it. But when I went on my third tour to the Balkans, I left when my wife was eight months pregnant. Mm. So, and that was, if you can appreciate, is December 1999. And it was, uh, the mission operation name was Operation Kinetic. And a uh, good name because we were, uh, it was a few weeks before Y2K. Yeah. So we didn't know what was going to happen in the world. I was reassured by the military. Your family's going to be fine. Stay focused on the mission. So my wife is eight months pregnant, Y2K looming two weeks away, and I'm on an aircraft heading over to Yugoslavia for the third time. Uh, so needless to say, uh, once I was there, did my mission test, when I came back, I said, I'm gonna look for something a little bit similar, but geographically based where I can come home at least once a day. Yeah. So, so that kind of military, I owe just about everything I have into business from the military. And I look at, a lot of it was based on the leaders I saw, both non-commissioned members and the the officers who were like the commissioned officers who were more strategic thinkers. And I, I like to uh, model their model the way uh, that they led by. That's yeah. I think you appreciate uh, the commute that you have when you realize that. Yeah, the, the, the commute for you was was getting on an airplane and going over uh, for your third tour while I think of Y2K at that time, I actually spent, I've shared this story on the podcast, so I won't belabor it, but my dad was the manager of the store, uh, Sears store in Timmins at the time. And I guess Sears Canada had all of its managers in the stores on the night of New Year's Eve because they thought, I don't know what they would have done if something happened, but all these guys and gals spent uh, New Year's Eve in the stores in case the electronics failed. And I don't know what my dad was going to do, but that's where he was. He was that night and we were with him actually. So. Yeah, you know, I think back to that night. There's always little little highlights of those tours, you know. And I remember that night vaguely because we were in comms with uh, Australia. So we had a satellite uplink with the uh, U.S. Armed Forces, and we were tracking what was happening to them. And I remember we were patrolling. We were at 100% stand to. So there was every able-bodied person out. And... Uh, I remember one of our commanders, and this is again, you know, you look back at those cool moments, and it was snowing over there. We were in the mountains, and we had had threats that uh, all of our equipment's going to fail, and that's when we're coming for you. And I remember we had no air cover. We had no air evac. We had nothing because they weren't flying aircraft because of the tech. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our uh, commanders, again, cool as a cucumber. I wish I could remember his name. He said, you got nothing to worry about, troops. Just remember this. Two things will work. 
center fire cartridges and our vehicles have carburetors. <laughs> and I just, go. you know, we're nervous and it was my third tour. So I had my whiskers. I, you know, I've been there and I had a lot of uh, people working for me at that time. were looking up to me like that was their first tour. And uh, I, I just remember that moment and it just kind of, he was right. Fall back on your training. And we have equipment that if, if the bottom falls out, we got this. Mm -hmm. Stakes were a little bit higher for your Y2K than mine at the Sears Star Antenna. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but speaking of that, Daryl, obviously we want to, we're going to talk about, we're going to get to this talking about how you've been able to leverage, you know, what you learned in the armed forces and the police, like into business now with, uh, with Rough Diamond. But we've talked offline and I think we're all like the three of us are big fans of, of Band of Brothers. And I know that you told us you listened to the Dale Die podcast when we, oh, we had him on and he shared his insights and, you know, some of his experience being in the armed forces before he kind of reinvented the way Hollywood approached, uh, you know, war films. But as somebody who's actually jumped out of an airplane uh, yourself, like, can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because obviously, you know, Steve and I would, would geek out over that with Band of Brothers uh, for as long as we could have you. But we know that we have uh, a limited amount of time, but we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to share some insights on what it's like to train to do that and then actually have that become like a regular you know, part of your job where for somebody like Steve and myself, like that seems like a thing that's just beyond anything that would be ever uh, achievable for us. But, you know, that was just part of what your duties were and, and you trained and, and prepared for it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do like a condensed version here and it all starts right from recruit school. When they tell you to be somewhere on time, there's a reason for it. You don't realize why do they get all amped up about you weren't five minutes early. You were on time. There's a reason for that. Then when you're done your basic training, 10 weeks, you go, I went to battle school. So that was four months. Now they raise the temperature and it's, you know, taking away sleep, taking away food, critical timings and punishments for being late. And you, you know, you have an idea, but you don't really understand what matters with timings. And, and I'll get to that. Or when they tell you, um, if you, if your toothbrush is supposed to be facing up in your top drawer, there's a reason for that. And it's called attention to detail. And you learn about it later on your jump course and it matters. And, uh, so the idea is when you're told to do something, there's a litany of reasons and there's not, there's, they could fill this room full of books as to the why, but in the military, there isn't always time for the why to explain it um for things like jumping out of an aircraft or being trained to so when you get to your jump course and it takes you have to be in for a couple of years prove you've mastered your trade because when you become a paratrooper they understand you're leaving an aircraft you're not in an armored vehicle where the ramp goes down and you have your section commander your second in command you're you're in a group you could be the only one who makes it to the drop zone when you leave the aircraft, if winds are high, um, if you fail to meet a split second timing, because if you do important starboard exit out of a Hercules or a C-141 Starlifter, you're going out at about one a second. And if you've got a 17 second drop zone, that pilot's trying to slow it down as much as he can before falling out of the sky, but he's also losing weight because you're losing, you know, your average paratrooper plus all your rucksack and your rifle on your shoulder and everything, you're, you're, you start to get very heavy, six, 700 pounds a second leaving the aircraft. So there's a lot of math involved. And uh, that's why it's weeks and weeks and weeks of training for the course. It's not 
like civilian skydiving and not to take away from that, but it's just very, very different. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're a half second late or a little bit slow uh, on the, uh, on the exit, the person behind you, it's, it's amplified. They may be into the power lines, into the trees, blown off into a river because the aircraft can't slow down anymore. So once that green light is on, you're out of that plane and the next person, there can't be any hesitation. So that's the, the, the timing, the, um, the critical component of when that comes on, you have to be flash to bangs now. And I remember something as simple as when we were loading our kits and we were, there's a thing that you're, when you're loading your gear and it's your, when you, when you're at 200 feet coming out of the, out of the aircraft, you're down, you're coming down, you're under canopy, all is good. You look around, there's no one below you. You have two thumbs and you release your rucksack. It drops about 15 feet on a cord and it's hanging below you. So it hits the ground a split second before you do. Well, what holds that cord in place is something called a retainer band. It's a retainer band. It looks, it smells, it feels, it pulls exactly like something we use. It's in our kitchen drawers, an elastic. But the punishment for calling a retainer band an elastic when you're loading your gear, if you say, hey, Mike, can you pass me an elastic? The punishment is severe. You're borderline removed from the course. And the reason for that is there was a jump one time and the uh, the jumper went out of the aircraft and he didn't have a strong exit. He kind of came backwards. He was uh, butt down, feet up, and his hands came forward and hit those two release buttons and his shoot his rucksack went into his chute. Part of that was because he didn't have a retainer band. He used an elastic. Uh -oh. It's set for a certain tensile. It's it's engineered. So when they tell you this or that or you turn your feet at a 30 degree angle, it's not 31, it's not 29. Mm -hmm. It's this for a reason. Is it like my very simple question about that, because that's an incredible attention to detail lesson that you learn from that. What the hell is it like the first time you jump out of a plane that's going, a perfectly good airplane that you jump out of? Yeah. Well, they do it really well. So they build you up with your training, and then they bring you to uh, when you pass all of your mock towers. So you jump at 34 feet, height of fear. You do it so many times to show you a good exit. Then they bring you to the parachute packing school. And you watch them pack and they are robustly deliberate focus. Like they're packing a chute. One person is watching when they're done packing. The one person walks forward, signs the tag. The person who packed it signs the tag. That person doesn't turn around. They hold on to a railing and walk back, keeping eyes on the chute. It's put off to the side and periodically they have to jump. So they build your confidence, build your confidence. And what they've been instilling you on the course is right back to World War II. There's signs all over the place and there's the airborne creed and there's things like the last easy day was yesterday. And, you know, like the airborne brotherhood, you're about to step into, you know, the van of battle. You're with the best of the best of the best and you're young and you're fit and yeah. you're tracking towards that. So when you're in that aircraft, your first jump, we call it a, a naked jump because you're just wearing your uniform and your chute, main and reserve. And uh, door opens and uh, 
you're pretty pumped up and you bravado there, but we're all scared to death. I was scared every single jump. It's just. Danny, do you remember the for the first like exactly oh, yeah. the, the first one? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I remember as I was getting closer to the door and uh, I was poor side. He threw me snap fast and fully aft. Jump master grabs it and I just squared off. You become um, a drill, like just doing it in the prop blast. It was actually uh, yeah. my first two jumps were with an American Starlifter. They were up in Canadian Forces Base, Edmonton, and the jet wash was just pushing you back into the aircraft and it's hot on the face, but you're trained to be aggressive and clear the aircraft because you don't want to hit it um, on the way out. So squared off did that. And then it becomes eerily silent <laughs> and you're looking around and you see an aircraft just going away from you. And there's still people spilling out of it and you, oh, I got to do my drills and you wake up for a split second. And then uh, you're under canopy and it's very surreal you don't feel like you're falling until you get a little closer to the fields and then it starts to come fast and you do your proper landing and, uh, uh, you know, you're pick up your shoot back out, load up, doing it again. And, <laughs> and every jump for four days is the progressively more equipment. And then they do your night jumps and then you you jump onto your graduation. Wow. That's great. Uh, that I mean, I could talk about that, that stuff for hours. Um, <laughs> Just uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, so we sort of, you sort of alluded to it, you know, in those those mentors you had, and you start to learn, you know, strategic uh, mission analysis, uh, operational planning, those kinds of things. So maybe it isn't so unlikely that you go from learning and and, and seeing those mentors to the business world. So can you talk about how some of those things you learned? in service that you know have now translated to what what you're doing now yeah so I, I see so many parallels um so many parallels and i'm very thankful um for the the leaders i learned under their tutelage and the courses i was set, sent on and i was assessed on small party taskings and something as simple as i remember one of my tasks when i was on my 12-week uh, leadership course and it was uh, one of my tasks was they needed, I think, six or 10 chairs brought from one room to another room. Simple enough. So my instructor says, uh, this is what I need done. Any questions? I said, no. So my instructor took two steps away, turned around, and he says, why isn't it done? And I said, what? And he says, just so you know, it's, you've been found ineffective for the following reasons. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. You have been found ineffective for the following reasons. <laughs> And he went, he says, he did not clarify when the task had to be completed. Interesting. He said, walk with me. So I'm almost surreally losing my hearing thinking, what just happened? We walk over, the door was locked where the chairs were supposed to go. He goes, did you ask that question? Did you ask any questions? And we went through about 10 things to understand. And this was all building up for later on when it was, two o'clock in the morning and we're about to do set up an L ambush on a crossroads. And I have to go by helicopter from point A to point B and then I have to lead people. There might be a mission shift and a hundred things are going to, are going to change. Radios are going to fail communications. Did I leave a five point contingency plan with the group that I just walked away from? Do they know what to do if I don't return? Can they carry on with the mission that I pass on to a second in command? All those things and it's all that training where when I went to do the second one, and it was a very similar task, it was to, I think it was to set up a tent in this area, one a military tent, 
And I stopped, I said, yes, I have questions. Where does the intent have to be? Do I have any assistance or any issues concerning what I have to do? Is there any safety concerns? Is there a certain way the tent has to be facing? And he had an answer for every single question <laughs> because the test wasn't about setting up a tent. That's yeah. not what it was. It was to start thinking and think your way through what you've been told because there are times in the military um, that someone will look at you tell you something and they'll say, do you understand? And a lot of people in the military have heard the word hua and uh, what it means to hear you. I understand you acknowledge back. So sometimes when an instructor or a sergeant or supervisor speaking, a soldier might respond with hua, and they continue the conversation. And uh, um, it, it's, it's all of that, the genesis of, Setting up those chairs led to farther down the road and which led me in business to think my way through that and to ask questions when there's could be critical decision-making. And this is what I say to the people around me. I say, what do we know? When do we know it? What do we know? When did we know it? Are we on, are like, we are at the bottom of the curve here for re reacting? Are we responding appropriately? And, uh, you know, the, 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 like I said, there's so many parallels with the military, especially when it comes to leadership, because number one, the first leadership principle, achieve professional competence. You don't have to be an expert in everything, but you have to be competent in the sphere you're dealing with. For example, um, the one piece of equipment uh, that I worked to design was to make shotcrete remotely for mining. And uh, I, I've never made shockery before, never, but I immerse myself in understanding it and now I'm competent in it so I can ask relevant questions because anybody can ask questions, but I could ask relevant questions. And when it was, when I hear a brief back, I can then process the data because I achieve professional competence. I'm, I'm not a subject matter expert in shockery by any reason but I know I have shotcrete experts around me, but I have achieved professional competence. Mm -hmm. And uh, another big, big, big one with me is, uh, again, military principle is uh, to know your people and promote their welfare. So to understand is, is that Sally who's uh, got uh, two twin children that are six months old at home and she's coming to work and she looks a little tired and she's, it's, Lots going on at home. Am I alert to when I ask her how she's doing? Am I really looking and listening? Am I paying attention to her kinesics? Is she is she just giving me these standard, oh, I'm good, I'm fine? Because a good supervisor, I always say supervisors need to have good supervision. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> uh, supervision to me, I don't know if I've ever told you guys this, is two words. As a supervisor, you need to have super vision yeah so i need to be alert with sally and jason over there who uh think last night maybe one of his buddies was having a stag so is he coming in is he fit is he good for work is he fit for duty is he where is he at do i want to maybe sit in the office for a couple hours or is he okay operating that uh that heavy piece of machinery 
And it's knowing what's going on in people's worlds a little bit as a supervisor, being alert to them and caring about their needs and uh, truly, uh, you know, finding out what makes people tick. Do people, is it time off that matters to them? Is it bonus? Um, is it appreciation in the workplace? Is it uh, courses through the, through the company? And because everybody has different wants and needs and it changes. It's never a five years ago, you said you were happy just with uh, some, uh, some bonus pay. I don't see here you wanted a promotion. A good supervisor stays in tune, right? And um, a big thing for me as well is to develop the leadership potential of those who work for me. Yeah. Because I always want someone, I want to train somebody or pass on knowledge for, uh, you know, that person can replace me. And that's okay. Some people get real jumpy about that. But uh, to me, I, I was taught in the military, the first thing you do when you're given a task is you appoint a second in command. You immediately point a second in command because if you turn and walk away, an instructor takes you aside and says, something just happened to you. You can't speak. You can't talk. You can't do anything. Let's see what Steve or Mike does now. Did you brief them? Do they have a general understanding of what has to be done? And I find with Rough Diamond, the people that I come in contact with daily through uh, our company, they can keep the boat afloat without me being there. I can go on holidays and I'm not getting a phone call every 15 minutes. Are we allowed to do this? Can I do that? Mm -hmm. No, I've already set that in motion months before and um, I'm there to prom promote their welfare. Know, their, know your people, promote their welfare. So they know that I'm not going to come back and pounding the desk. What do you mean you bought these pens why did who authorized the purchase of those pens that should have went through me yeah so they understand their 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 boundaries yeah and they're they're supported yeah no it's definitely a mark of a good manager and good supervisor and a, and a good team when you're able to do that steve and i actually had a we shared a similar boss previously not at the same time but his one of his mantras which i don't think necessarily made a ton of sense, but it's same principle. He always used to say to us, eliminate my job, which I think what he meant was, you know, I want to, I want to put you in a position so that at some point we don't eliminate the job, but I take, you take my job and you, you go on and you move on, or you at least take my teachings and, and move on somewhere else. So, I mean, I think that's uh that's a big part of it as well, because when it comes down to it, it's, it's, it's people, you're managing people. And so obviously we know what the tasks are and it differs from company to company, but at the end of the day, if you're not taking care of those people or managing those people, whether it's applied research or or vehicle platforms, um, you're not going to go far. So to kind of transition uh, or change gears, although Steve already used that, that's maybe too apropos now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we want to talk about Rough Diamond. And, you know, we know that from your service, you had experience with amphibious off-road vehicles. And certainly, you know, with the tactical unit here in Sudbury, you would have had experience with, uh, with with different kinds of vehicles. So was it a natural offshoot to take that experience you already had to start Rough Diamond? Or is there actually a different story there that you would tell about how you went from, uh, you know, from where you were to to with Rough Diamond now? Yeah, you know, I, I never saw it because I was climbing through the ranks in the police department. I was on my way to next level and because of the military. And then uh, Felix, I came in contact with Felix Lopes and uh, I give the guy credit because I define him as one of those people who he sees sooner and scans wider. He just 
sees whether it's a day, a week, a month before somebody else. And he, he doesn't have tunnel vision. He's looking very wide and what's happening around cause and effect. Something could be happening in Europe and he's, he's looking at a, at a linkage over here and very, very good. But he, he was very keen on uh, me getting into business. So I said, I'm not a business person at all. He goes, Oh, but you are. And I thought, well, no, I don't think so, but thank you. And they continued on and uh, a couple dinners later, more meetings. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it on my days off. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of liked it. And I saw where um, I was able to affect change a little faster. And um, so with the, f- we, we ended up going with a fat truck made out of Quebec and we'd like to get a trip to Quebec, saw the machine. And when we first saw it, the factory was empty. We just saw a prototype unit. But we looked, we listened, we liked what we saw, and we signed on to be a dealer for Ontario, which is now expanded to Manitoba and Nunavut. And I've introduced the Canadian forces to the fat truck uh, in uh, January. So seeing the fat truck and, and the relationship, again, those relationships and uh, uh, working with Zeal Motor with the fat truck, we, uh, you know, I took what I knew from all of the half track, half wheel, full track, full wheel, uh, amphibious vehicles, partial this, snow machines, heavy duty this. Um, and I applied that for Rough Diamond and also assisted to help uh, pass on positive info to Zeal Motor to help them grow their company. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And, um, you know, rugged amphibious um, in the middle of nowhere. My dad was a, uh, um, uh, he got his mechanic training through the Canadian Armed Forces. And, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere trying to fix something with only what you brought, you know, you, you get really, you really want to then influence the design of, of how that should be made so it doesn't break. And then he was also a mechanic at the logging company, which is even worse. You're in the middle of the bush, uh, you know, trying to fix a skitter, you know, it's it's kind of the worst uh, scenario. But, but this fat truck platform, uh, like, to look at it, you think it's a toy almost, right? Like it's a toy that's been blown up, but it has such like uniqueness. Uh, there's nothing really else in its class that, that it can be compared to. It's not, you know, it's not an Argo. It's, it's not a, you know, it's not a four by four pickup truck. Like uh, maybe I'll just for, for a second, if you could just tell us a bit about that fat truck and I'd love to, we might not have time today, but understand what, what it was like to sell that back to the Canadian armed forces now, because you guys must've had lots of points of connection on when you're talking and they're probably picking up what you're putting down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So fat truck, it's uh, basically, if you could imagine a large tired vehicle, um, it looks a lot heavier than it is. It's like a, it's like an overblown Tonka truck and uh, centralized tire inflation based on, whatever tire pressure you want. You want snow, mud, trail, or water. And uh, touch of a button, it changes it. Uh, swamps, marsh, muskeg, you can swim with a thousand kgs on board. Um, so they have two platforms like that. It's a pickup truck as well as a wagon for a people mover. And what I'm ultra excited about was what landed February 23rd, and that's the 8 by 8 So it's an articulating unit. And that thing is next level. I drove it in January. I brought the military to take a look at it before we launched it. I had a bit of fun with them. And I said, hey, can I trust you guys with a secret? And they were all from Canadian Special Operations Force Command. And we had a good laugh because, uh, <laughs> you know, 
And uh, it was just, they, they, they were, couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. And the comfort and safety built into it. And what a lot of people don't really think about is the, how comfortable it is rolling over a, you know, 30 centimeter, 40 centimeter boulder stumps. It just rolls right over it comfortably and it doesn't transfer that energy to the operator inside. It could be extremely tired, exhausted from a mission task. Before we jumped on, we were talking about PDAC, um, the Prospectors and Developers Association of, of Canada show. And I would, I would wonder if you'd just tell us a bit about uh, how that fat truck is sort of positioned for the sort of remote mining and exploration sector. And then just some of your, some of the feedback you got at PDAC, because I'm sure you were pretty busy there. Yeah. So we sold multiple units on the show. Just people were, could not believe the capabilities of it. They saw the videos. Uh, we had an emergency request from a mining company on day two while we were there because they wow. heard about it and contacted me while I was at the show. Um, it was it was strategically perfect where we were. Uh, people could walk around, see it, sit in it, have an immersive experience. Because you can see something on your computer screen and it's fine. But what's truly final is sitting in it and understanding it. And the next best thing would be a demo ride. But uh, the exploration community is just so impressed with its payload because what their wants are is... They want to be able to bring out fuel and steel to their drilling rigs with a crew and then come back with core samples. And that's very hard for them. And it's challenging, especially when the weather turns and they're using helicopters because the, the fat truck doesn't care if it's snowing, windy, raining, lightning, uh, dark, windy. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Uh, it's deploying. And that's what it's designed for. And uh, they really like that because they also have a safety vehicle on site because th right. there's some places they have to stop drilling if that helicopter can't fly that's sitting there. Because, because if someone not, gets hurt, they can't extricate them. That's right. So we're wow. in the fat truck, off we go. Uh, but the real takeaway, I was really, really surprised. I've got, I received a, uh, a call two days ago from the minister's office, uh, Greg Rickford. And uh, he's coming here to Rough Diamond April 3rd. And because <laughs> uh, he really liked the fat truck. And uh, so he wants to come for a demo ride. There you go. So, yes. Yeah, so he's coming out April 3rd. And uh, what he sees and what uh, Minister uh, Patty Haju noticed was for our remote First Nations communities. They have that, we call it the shoulder season, where yeah, yeah. you can't put the transports on the ice roads and early, and then when they have to come off, the fat truck can get on a month earlier and stay on a month later. And mm -hmm. now with the 8x8, eight eight with its, with its 2,500 kg payload, plus it can tow a trailer, that really opens up the north for them. So there's mine exploration, there's uh, helping out our First Nations communities, and we want to work with them. Mm -hmm. We want to work with them to help them uh, solve that pressure problem of of time because we can't control the weather. But what the fat truck can do is it can control your safety. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of applicability in in a, in a range of sectors, especially uh, you know in in the north as well. And Daryl, we've 
We'd love to talk to you more about that. And we've already taken up more time than, than you, you offered, but uh, I'm going to take one more Liberty because you shared this offline before we started recording. And it's too good not to share again, because right now I'm training for the Sudbury rocks uh, race that's happening in May. And I'm only doing the 10 K this year. I had done a half marathon in the first season of COVID. So I've got to get back to that at some point, but I haven't been running enough to, to reasonably do a half marathon, but you talked about the, the Nijmegen March that you've done previously. And if you could talk a little about that, because I think it kind of (laughs) makes my 10 K race, you know, pale in comparison to, uh, to 50 K a day for, uh, for four days with full gear and pack. Yeah. So the Nijmegen March has been going on for 80 plus years. Uh, It's held in Nijmegen, Holland and every year, 40 plus thousand participants, attend it and they do everything from I think 10k up to 21k but the military and it's all on their website but the military they do um you have to wear combat boots combat pants your unit shirt and a beret that you're allowed to take off if it gets really hot um and you have a backpack and it has to have a 30 pound plate of steel on it and uh you do 50 kilometers a day per day uh per 50k per day four days in a row and um, <laughs> you start, <laughs> I know it sounds remarkable. Yes. I, I still shake my head. How did I, or why did I do it? But the Canadian military, they start and you have to do 750 kilometers of training before you do it. It's very measured, very pragmatic. And we started off doing a 4.5 kilometer March and then a five, and then a five and a half, then back before. And they have a schedule. It's all online <laughs> to build you up to toughen your feet, get you used to walking that distance to get your knees, hips, elbows, back, shoulders ready for that. Cause you can appreciate you have, I think there's five or 6,000 soldiers or military personnel that participate of the 40,000. And it is just incredible. It's very, very proud to be there. Proud moment because uh, you're representing Canada. And at the end of the four days, Canada has 16 10-person teams, and we lead the march in to get the uh, the Nijmegen medal. And Canada, we have a very, very close relationship, obviously, from World mm-hmm. War II uh, with the Dutch. And uh, you're presented with your Nijmegen medal, and uh, it's a night of uh, festivities. But you could appreciate every night is a night of festivities. <laughs> when you finish your 50K, you're oh, not yeah. going to bed. You're not in a hotel. You're sleeping <laughs> on a cot. Yeah. And, uh, but we trained and, you know, the old adage, right? Uh, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. Yeah. And we trained and smartly and learned how to hydrate, listen to your body and slowly build it up and put your ego aside. And if you think you can do 20 K today, you don't have to maybe go 15. Go. You don't always have to be, uh, follow a schedule, be smart and listen to your body. You know what? That almost made me emotional. My uh, my my grandmother was a Dutch war bride, and my grandfather was in in World War II, and then that's where they met was in Holland. So yeah. I I mean that that special relationship between Canada and the Netherlands, you know that really uh, hits home for me. But uh, what a way to end the podcast! Uh, thank you so much, uh, Daryl Adams, for for taking time. I'm sure Mike and I will see you around. We sort of uh, swim in the same circles here Absolutely. in the mining uh, community, but really, really uh, thank you for, for sharing your time and your, and your story. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to speak.
three miles up, three miles down. Steve, what is Kurahi? There you we go. We shall we shall run Kurahi. Yeah, no, I think. Um, gosh, I I've forgotten the name now of the Dutch town he was talking about. But like that seems like an incredible thing to do. What a great story. Yeah, that's that's like an insane amount of of miles and kilometers to log in in four days. Um, that would be like basically like walking from here like past Perry Sound in terms of if you're doing like 50 <laughs> clicks a day, right? So like if you want to put it into, uh, into perspective. Yeah. Uh but yeah, like I didn't I I had not heard about the Nijmegen March. Uh obviously I've already talked about Curahee, but I will say this because I didn't get to talk about it in the episode with Daryl because we were already tight on time. But like that's one of the things where I don't have like a lot of things on my bucket list where I'm like I have to do this or I have to go there. But like you know that I'm obviously a big fan of Band of Brothers and you know that I like to run. So like one of the things that I do have on my list and I've talked to Chantel about is that at some point I'm going to go to Tacoa, Georgia, and they have an annual race where you can do the three miles up, three miles down at, at Curahy. And uh, so like, I don't know when I'm going to do it. I'm obviously not doing it this summer because I think it happens every June, probably to coincide with D-Day, which would make sense. Uh, but I think at some point, like it's on my list. I just have to do it because I don't know how many times I've seen them wa- do that run on the show. I know that would be pretty awesome to actually be able to do that in real life. I'm almost due for a rewatch. Actually, I just realized I might I might have to hit a rewatch uh, soon. Maybe I'll maybe around D Day I'll I'll throw it back on again. Uh, my wife and I are supposed to go. I have family in, in Holland. I think I've mentioned on the pod. I've before. never heard I'd that l- before. <laughs> I would love to go visit them, and of course. Uh, uh, go to Nijmegen. I don't know where that is in Holland. I have to look it up. But the good thing is, it's a very small country. I'm sure we can make a stop there. Yeah, I'm sure you'll find your way. When yeah. are you guys doing that? Well, uh, we wanted to do works. it. Th- well, we wanted to do it this summer, but I don't think we'll have time. We're supposed to be doing a kitchen renovation. Don't want to commit myself to that on air, in case she's listening. But she's not listening. <laughs> she's not um, listening. She's not listening. <laughs> she's not listening. But uh, you know, it obviously summer or fall is when I'd like to go. Uh, so probably next summer at this rate. Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Do they make Thanks. a size thirteen clog for you or what? I have size 12 feet and yeah, but wouldn't up, you, don't they have to be bigger because they're made out of, of wood? So like, yeah, yeah not I, a lot like, of flexibility. People don't wear those as just, <laughs> you know, a shoe to wear. They're incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I had a pair when I was younger that my grandmother bought me on one of our trips back there. And, uh, it seems uh, maniacal to make someone wear those. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> The wooden yeah, shoe. I, I don't. You definitely. I think we've. I, I think we've progressed past the wooden shoe. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Daryl talked about that. Uh, one of the grannies that he ran across in that that march. I'm sure she was not wearing wooden clogs, but but maybe she was because maybe she's that hardcore. We don't know. Could be. They're pretty hardcore people. I, I had a friend yeah. that always used to bother my grandmother. They said that's why you guys got invaded. You can't sneak up on anyone in those wooden shoes. <laughs> oh, ooh, that's that's too soon, and it's been yeah. uh, it's been like eighty years. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but anyway, uh, any other takeaways that you want to share with with Daryl, rather than just uh, you and I could talk about clogs for hours? But well, I think um, <laughs> you know, next time we see Daryl, we should probably. Um, get go for a ride in a fat truck i haven't been in one yet it would be awesome to pilot one around yeah well we, we know that our wives aren't listening but we're assuming that daryl is at least listening or at least he <laughs> yeah. listened to his part he's probably tuned out now but yes we haven't <laughs> done that yet we have to experience a fat truck ride not to say that we're on the same level as minister greg rickford but uh if there's ever an opportunity uh i think that would make for uh we should have done the podcast in the fat truck 
Yeah. I don't know how logistically, but anyway. Well, and I hope no one would make fun of us if they do see us in the fat truck, because of course that would be fat shaming. (laughs) No. And and I think that's it. I don't know how we can recover. Um, So that's it for the unlikely innovators this week. Thanks to Daryl Adams for joining us. Uh, Great to hear about his journey in the armed forces through police services. And now what he's doing with rough diamond. Thank you for lasting as long as you have with us this week. And we'll be back with some more content and some interesting guests uh, next week. Bye. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.